Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. This week, I'm with Paul Monies, who covers state government for Oklahoma Watch. Paul, you've been working on a collaborative story about Oklahoma consumers being on the hook for the massive fuel costs racked up by the state's electric and natural gas utilities during the winter storm last February. Tell us what you've learned. That's right. Yeah, we've we've been looking at some of these cases that have, have come down um, at the Corporation Commission, which regulates uh, our state's uh, oil and natural gas um, and electric utilities. And, you know, there, there's probably three or four cases in the works right now. Um, basically, all the utilities have asked to, to pay for this in a way called securitization, which is kind of a big financial word, but basically means that put, put this, uh, these costs on a kind of consumer card, uh, credit card, so to say, that the consumer will be paying back over 25 years on their bills. Um, now, there's been one case already that's been settled and approved by the Corporation Commission for Oklahoma Gas and Electric, um, uh, but we particularly looked at one having to do with Oklahoma Natural Gas, which is the largest natural gas utility in the state, has almost 900,000 customers. Um, over the course of about a week uh, last February, um, ONG paid um, more than $1.3 billion for natural gas as sky- prices went sky high. Demand soared a little bit during that time, but there was also some problems with the weather, with uh, freezing wellheads. So the production sides were a bit of a problem. Um, and now all of that cost is passed directly on to the consumer. Um, now, you know, there was a couple ways they could have paid for this, but um, they've settled on securitization. And that basically means that they're going to go out and take that debt off the utilities' books, put it over kind of in a holding category, and then charge customers. They want to charge the gas customers probably about 5 or $6.00 a month for the next 25 years to pay for those massive costs. Wow. Does that, does that build in anything other than the direct cost? Does that include any allowance for inflation or, or interest or anything over that? That's a long period of time. Yeah, the interesting thing about the, the one that uh, Oklahoma Natural Gas is doing is it's a fixed cost for everybody. So no matter how much you pay, you use gas during that week or so of really extreme cold pro- uh, temperatures, we're all going to be paying that standard cost per customer. So it doesn't matter if you're in a small apartment, if you're in a you know 8,000 square foot mansion or whatever, and you use a lot more gas to heat your house or get your hot water heater or, or other stuff going on at the, the stove during that time, we'll all be paying a fixed cost. And so some utility advocates and consumer advocates are saying, well, that's not very fair, especially when you're paying back these costs over decades now um, if these charges are approved. So uh, are there any really good solutions to those high fuel costs? Well, the, the, that's the problem with this. It was there was no ideal solution, and um, you know the other options that were out there before lawmakers approved the securitization bills that came through very quickly last uh, spring in the legislative session were basically the first one was essentially go ahead and just bill the customers all that that money, um, and that would obviously cause some huge price shocks. We never got bills at those high levels. They were projected within probably about you know twelve hundred dollars per customer extra for the next six or seven months that we'd have to pay back. And obviously that was not going to start anybody's, um, that wasn't going to make anybody happy at all across the economy. And so they then could have said, well, told the utilities, well, you take this debt and you pay it off over 25 years, and then we'll let you kind of make a little money on the way, basically a carrying cost to have that debt on your books. 
that would allow the utilities to profit at about 8 to 10% of that giant debt. And so a lot of lawmakers, regulators said that's not going to work either. And they settled on securitization, which has never been used before in Oklahoma, but has been used in the past in other states for storm damages like hurricanes and, and wildfires in California to fix kind of large infrastructure problems. But um, this would be the first time it's going directly for a fuel cost, which is normally passed straight on to the customers. Have the regulators been pushing back pretty hard on that? Um, they have on, on just basically if the fuel was bought appropriately. Um, now, the, the regulators of the Corporation Commission will tell you their remit, base, remit is basically we look, make sure that utilities were buying this without, you know, a subsidiary of their own selling it to them and making sure there's arms like transactions during the, when they're buying these high prices. But, um, you know, other than that, they kind of just said we've, they have to pay this cost back and the consumer's got to pay for it somehow. Um, you know, at the same time, the attorney general at the time uh, announced price gouging investigations, price manipulation investigations. We haven't heard much on that front since then. That still could happen and that would you know, knock off some of the, this, these high costs, but that takes a long time to get through the system as well. So that we haven't heard much on that front. All right, Paul, thanks so much. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative reporting at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening who covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. Rebecca, you've been following the state's position on non-binary birth certificates. What have you learned since the last time we talked about this? Yeah, so last time I was on the show, I said that it was possible for binary changes to still be made to birth certificates, um, but that's not entirely correct anymore. Um, while judges are still granting court orders, which are what was needed to present to the health department in order to update your birth certificate. Um, the state health department is rejecting those court orders. So it kind of leaves these people in a state of limbo. Um, and I talked to a couple of judges and asked them if they still plan to continue granting these court orders despite the executive order. And pretty much what I was told was until there is a law specifically prohibiting them from granting them, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. Their, law, their, their job is just to interpret the law. Um, and these um, cases are very rare, so they don't have to, they don't happen often. Okay, well, what what are some of the the reasons that people would want to change their gender marker on their birth certificate? So, what a lot of people tell me, whether it be um, non-binary people, transgender people, or just officials, is it's often for safety reasons. Um, the state of Oklahoma doesn't have um, non-discrimination laws. So say you're trying to rent a house um, or something like that, you can just be denied. Um, and people who may not generally be perceived as trans, um, they're outed the moment that they hand over uh, documentation, their IDs, things like that. Um, so people often want to you know, update their documentation, whether it be their birth certificate or their ID, just so they can do these everyday things that we might not really think about like open a birth certificate or open a bank account, um, build credit, things like that. So if I imagine the scenario that you're describing here, perhaps a trans person goes to rent a house, they present outwardly as female, but their identification shows they're male, and that could maybe cause the landlord to decide not to rent to them. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. Do uh, other states allow gender marker changes on birth certificates? And, and if so, what are their processes like? So every state except for 
Tennessee and Ohio actually allows you to um, change your gender marker. Um, though Ohio will soon allow those changes after a lawsuit, much like Oklahoma had uh, several months back. Um, and then 12 states, including the District of Columbia, actually allow a third gender marker option, which is what we had very briefly before the executive order um, that allows people to update their gender to non-binary. And uh, Colorado is actually the closest state that allows um, non-binary gender markers. And while in Oklahoma, we had to have a court order to update our birth certificate. In Colorado, all you have to do is show up to the health department, fill out a form, or um, and just apply in person, and that's it. Okay, what, what are the legal experts saying in response? Um, so pretty much what I've been told is this is unconstitutional. Um, and it just sets the state up for more lawsuits. Um, people encourage judges to keep allowing these court orders to happen, um, even though people are going to be left in a state of limbo, um, because it does set up the state for more lawsuits. So there's possible change in the future. Maybe this won't stick forever kind of thing. Um, do we do we have any idea how ultimately this gets resolved, right? There's this kind of conflict between the executive order and, and what the courts are doing. How does that eventually work out? Um, well, what um, I've been told, I talked with um, an attorney at Lambda Legal, which is a nonprofit who focuses on helping, uh, who focuses on like civil rights for the LGBTQ community. And what she told me is, um, you know, other states have been sued as well um, for pretty much the situation that we're in as well. Um, so they're not really going to be able to make, uh, have legislation that really allows uh, this to happen. So I don't really know what to say. I think we just kind of have to wait and see what happens. Um, but ultimately it sounds like it has to work its way through the court system and uh, we probably go through the appellate system and, and there's some ultimate decision made that way, which could take a while. Right. So that's why, um, you know, she encourages judges to keep making, uh, granting these court orders. Um, and as I mentioned in the previous podcast, it is kind of difficult to get these court orders just because there's not a lot of um, laws, I guess, that like expl- like state this is what you have to do in order to get these court orders. Um, so that's a challenge in itself. So law, law developing as we go. Right. Well, thanks, Rebecca. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative work at OklahomaWatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. And this week, I'm with Trevor Brown, who covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch. Trevor, you're working on a new project to add transparency and openness to potential conflicts of interest in the legislature. What can you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so lawmakers and some state officials every year, they need to fill out a financial disclosure form. You know, these are the forms that they have to fill out where if they have certificate financial holdings or a revenue stream outside of their uh, state pay, and they have to list where that's coming from. Now, there's a sort of gap in the state's transparency in terms of these. You can request them, but there's no way for the public just to go to a centralized website and look them up. So you got to go, go through a couple of steps and you know, for a lot of you know everyday people, that's a bit of a turnoff. Um, so what we're doing is we're trying to host all of them. We're not only trying to, you know, put the actual forms up so anybody can look at it, but you know we're trying to make it searchable. We're trying to code their financial, um, you know, holdings so you can see rather than you know X Y Z LLC, it's a real estate company. So you can 
actually kind of know where they're getting their money. Okay. Uh, there, there's been some other recent news about conflicts of interest in the legislature. Tell us about that. Yeah, so earlier this year, Representative Terry, Terry O'Donnell, he was the number two Republican in the State House of Representatives. He resigned after he was indicted of several counts stemming from his vote on the 2019 bill that removed a rule that family members of lawmakers can't run tag agencies. Um, you know, he took part in that vote. He voted to help pass it. Later, his wife took charge of the tag agency. Now he's being accused of not recusing himself of that vote and there being a conflict of interest, a way for him to benefit from his vote. Um, so these are the type of connections that we kind of want to show and kind of, you know, let our readers also kind of explore. Um, you know, you can see if there's a bill on real estate, you could go look through the things, see who has, you know, holdings in real estate companies, who's benefiting from some of these things. So when... Uh candidates, legislators fill out those disclosures. Uh, Is it comprehensive? How does it compare to other states? Yes. So I did an article a couple years back where I I, I looked at just that, just how the states or Oklahoma compares to other states. Um, You know, I found out that we lag many states in what the federal government requires. You know, for example, we require, um, you know, state officials to list if they have earnings in a company, private company, over $20,000 or 5% of a publicly traded company. Um, the problem is we don't require how much. So they could just say, I have interest in this company. It could be 20000 could be $2 million. We just don't know that. Um, you know, these also don't require fil- filers, you know, to say, you know, for some of the big holdings, you know, that 5% for publicly traded, you could have you know, a huge holding of, like, Apple stocks, but, you know, those are not required to be reported. Now, there's been some debate about who's required to file those disclosures. Um, Who's required to file and when? Yeah, so each year around May, um, everyone has to uh, report their interest of the last year, Um, but this does not carry over to candidates, that's um, that's in contrast to the federal government, and I think about three dozen states that require candidates to um, to show kind of their holdings. So you know, when Governor Stitt was running a couple years back, you know, we weren't able to see what he um, where his financial holdings were until after he got elected. Got it. So uh, this project is one of the first ones that you're doing since. Uh, launching our new democracy and misinformation beat. Talk about that just briefly and what to expect. Yeah, so I'm really excited about this new year where we sh- we're shifting my beat to from state government politics to democracy and misinformation. What that means is that I'm going to be looking at a lot of things that revolve around voting, revolve around conflicts of interest, lobbying, money in politics. But I also want to look at misinformation. So I want to see who is, you know, still repeating lies about the election or about the vaccines. Um, I've done that a good bit in the last year, but we really want that to make a priority for Oklahoma Watch moving forward. And um, I'm really excited to see what we can do with that. Hey, well, thanks, Trevor. Long Story Short is a weekly segment featuring discussion of top stories from Oklahoma Watch reporters. You can listen to the Long Story Short podcast and read all of our investigative reporting at oklahomawatch.org. 
I'm Ted Strilly. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.